everybody. Good to see you all. Hey, I want to uh, start by asking a question tonight. How does Christianity intersect with a post-Christian world? You're still squeaking in your seats. How does Christianity intersect with a post-Christian world? Put differently, in a world, in a society, in a culture that's often heard it all and often doesn't care, where do Christians begin when it comes to interacting with people that don't share our faith in Jesus? Maybe you're like me and, and you sometimes find it difficult to relate to others that don't share your beliefs. How do we find common ground? How do we find common ground? Oddly enough, I think we have something to learn from Chris Pratt, uh, who most of you know is a Hollywood star. He's also a Christian. Uh, in this past June, he accepted a war, an award uh, at the MTV something or other award ceremony. So let's watch. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to present this year's Generation Award to Chris Pratt. Thank you. Can you hear me? I don't want to lean down. <clears throat> I want to thank Bryce and Aubrey. I love you both so much. Uh, thank you, MTV, for this honor. Uh, real quick thanks to my mom and my dad and my brother, Cully, my sister, Angie. I love you. I love our family. We didn't have a pot to piss in growing up, but we laughed our butts off every day, and we still do. Uh, and a special mention to my son, Jack, who will watch this one day. Kid, I love you. I love you more than anything in the world. And to the fans, I wouldn't be here without you. Thank you. Um, this being the Generation Award, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut to the chase and I'm gonna speak to you, the next generation, okay? I accept the responsibility as your elder, so listen up. This is what I call nine rules from Chris Pratt, Generation Award winner. Number one, breathe. If you don't, you'll suffocate. Number two, you have a soul. Be careful with it. Number three, don't be a turd. If you're strong, be a protector, and if you're smart, be a humble influencer. Strength and intelligence can be weapons, and do not wield them against the weak. That makes you a bully. Be bigger than that. Number four, when giving a dog medicine, Put the medicine in a little piece of hamburger, they won't even know they're eating medicine. Number five, doesn't matter what it is, earn it. A good deed, reach out to someone in pain, be of service, it feels good and it's good for your soul. Number six, God is real. God loves you. God wants the best for you, believe that. I do. Number seven, if you have to poop at a party, but you're embarrassed because you're gonna stink up the bathroom, just do what I do, lock the door, sit down, get all the pee out first, okay? And then once all the pee's done, 
poop, flush, boom. You minimize the amount of time that the poop is touching the air, because if you poop first, it takes you longer to pee, and then you're peeing on top of it, stirring it up, the poop particles create a cloud, goes out, and then everyone in the party will know that you pooped. Just, tr just trust me, it's science. Number eight, learn to pray. It's easy, and it's so good for your soul. And finally, number nine, nobody is perfect. People are gonna tell you you're perfect just the way you are. You're not. You are imperfect. You always will be, but there is a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you're willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift. And like the freedom that we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for with somebody else's blood, do not forget it. Don't take it for granted. God bless you. Please get home safely. Thank you. Pee, poop, flush, boom. Genius. I looked it up. Over three million people were either at or watching uh, that awards speech live. Another two million have watched that YouTube video, and I'm sure countless more. I want you guys to think for a second. Think for a second about everyone watching and listening to what Chris Pratt said. Think about the diversity of backgrounds, people young, people old, celebrities, broke college students, people with varied lifestyles, people with drastically different likes and dislikes, people with different politics, people with different religions, atheists, Christians, everything in between. And yet, and yet, Chris Pratt, with four minutes of a short speech, taps into something profound, profoundly important about all human beings, and that's this. We all share common ground. Now, of course, not everybody watching what Chris Pratt said agrees with him. Our differences are real. But one of the things he helps us see is that we also have things in common, that on some level, on some level, we're not so different at all. As human beings, we share similar values, similar concerns, similar interests, similar needs. 2,000-ish years ago, the Apostle Paul understood the same thing. And as we continue our series in Acts tonight, we'll see how Paul's passion for others to know and love Jesus motivated him to find common ground with those that didn't share his beliefs with the hope that one day they would. Paul's passion for others to know and love Jesus, it eventually brings him to the city of Athens in his second missionary journey. What did he see when he got there? We'll pick up the story in Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. See, Athens in the first century AD, it was a shadow of its former self compared to the, the, the days of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle in the 4th and 5th century BC, but it was still one of the most prominent cultural and intellectual centers of the Greco-Roman world. Athens was a city filled with artistic beauty, particularly seen in its countless statues of Greek gods and goddesses and, and in the architectural magnificence of its temples and shrines. My wife and I um, were actually in Athens on our honeymoon. Some, this is what these uh, places look like, like now. Um, the Acropolis, uh, Athens' ancient citadel, located on a rocky outcrop above the city. Within the Acropolis uh, was the Parthenon, the great temple to the 
Greek goddess Athena. The Agora was the city's central marketplace, a place full of of stoas like that, painted by famous artists, filled with philosophers debating all kinds of ideas. They're partial ruins for us now, but in Paul's day, these things were magnificent. And while Paul's in Athens, he sees them all, and he sees plenty more. But notice it's not that Athens grandeur that strikes Paul. It wasn't the brilliance of Athens that captured his attention. No, what captured his attention first and foremost was the city's idolatry. See, Paul tells us that Athens was full of idols, Some have said that it was easier in Athens to find a god than it was to find a man. Now, we sometimes talk about the idol of of money or or power or, or sex. Paul walked around Athens and he sees physical objects, countless temples, shrines, statues, altars, Images of of Greek gods and goddesses, statues of gold and silver and ivory and marble crafted by the finest Greek sculptors. They're everywhere. And it's not that Paul is blind to their splendor and their beauty, but it's that their splendor and their beauty didn't impress him. You see, Paul walks around the streets of Athens and he has spiritual eyes and he sees a city submerged in its worship of idols. How does that make him feel? Look again at verse 16. While he's there in Athens waiting for them, he was greatly distressed. You see, he's greatly distressed by what he sees. That Greek word that that we translate, greatly distressed, is actually somewhat difficult to translate. It's It's a complex word that describes a deep mixture of both anger and sorrow. To 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 give a a contemporary example, it This word captures a similar emotion to what many of us have felt over the last several months as more and more women in our culture have come forward sharing heartbreaking stories of sexual abuse by men in power. These stories, they're devastatingly sad and they're infuriating. It's not okay. It provokes us to anger and it's heartbreaking that it happened and that it continues to happen. It has to stop. That's how Paul felt. He didn't just notice the idolatry. He was greatly distressed by it. You see, he too was provoked, provoked to anger, but also to sadness and grief. He was mad, but he was mad about something terribly sad. A city drowning in an ocean of idols, people bowing to images, people bowing to statues of gods and goddesses. See, we might not physically bow to Greek gods or goddesses. But like Luli was asking us earlier, what what are the idols that we often worship in our culture? What are the idols that, that if you're honest with yourself, that you often worship? Tim Keller, he says this about idolatry. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you only what God can give? What's that for you? A relationship status? GPA? An exam score? A grad school? A leadership position? A job? Your physical appearance? your friend group, your autonomy, your freedom to to make your own choices, to be original. 
Is it approval from other people? What do you worship other than Jesus? What are the idols in your life? Let me ask a different question. How does idolatry make you feel? How does your idolatry make you feel? Are you provoked the way Paul was? Or is it not really that big of a deal? You see, it was a really big deal to Paul because he saw a city. He saw a group of people destroying their lives by putting their faith, putting their hope in empty promises of things that couldn't, that couldn't come through. He saw people looking to get from things something that they could only truly get from God, and it infuriated him. It made him mad about something sad. And so what does he do? Probably not what we would guess. Pick up in verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now notice what Paul doesn't do first. He doesn't throw up his hands with anger. He doesn't throw up his hands with disgust. Nor does he resort to name calling. Paul doesn't attack. He doesn't belittle. He also doesn't accept their idolatry. He doesn't say, who am I to say anything? He doesn't say, you know what, they look pretty happy, so I'm, I'm just going to stay out of it. So instead of condemning, instead of walking away from or accepting their idolatry, Paul does something different. He stays, and he leans in. He leans into his own discomfort, to his own distress, to the challenge of what lies before him, and he gets to know these people, and he patiently reasons with them. He uses reason and tact, people very different from him. You see, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they, they were two rival schools of philosophy in Paul's day, two vastly different schools of thought, two vastly different groups of people, and yet, in spite of their differences with Paul, their background, their lifestyle, their beliefs, Paul doesn't attack them, he reasons with them. You see, Paul is patient with people that are different than him, that believe different things, that live differently with the hope that they might turn from their idols, turn from the faith that they have in these faithless gods to put their faith in Jesus. And notice how they respond. They say in verse 19 and 20, they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting because these things are strange. What are you talking about? You see, Paul's words about Jesus and the resurrection, of course they were strange. They were things that these people hadn't heard before. But, but because of Paul's approach, because of his winsomeness, because of his patience, because of his reason, they wanted to know more. So here's a question. How many times in your life has attacking someone persuaded them? How many times in your life has attacking someone actually helped the situation? 
Or to flip it a bit, how often has a harsh word spoken to you or, or an angered criticism actually changed your opinion, convinced you that you were wrong? See, my guess is rarely, if ever. See, I think far too often Christians, myself included, were more interested in attacking false beliefs instead of reason, in using reason and patience and tact and relationships to persuade. We live in a knee-jerk society plagued by quick assumptions and, and online attacks. I mean, you guys have read comment sections on blog posts and articles and social media posts. You know, a few minutes in, and you're like, man, i got to take a shower. It's, it's, frankly, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to see how Christians sometimes treat those that don't share our beliefs. It's embarrassing sometimes to see, as Christians, our lack of tact, our harshness, our lack of patience, our lack of grace, and of course, myself included. But Paul doesn't burn it all down because he sees false beliefs. Paul doesn't burn the whole city down because he sees their idolatry. Instead, he builds a bridge. He tries to find common ground. How? What does he say? Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. See, Paul has a couple choices to make with the people listening to him. He could choose to make a point out of their differences because there were many. He could choose to make a point out of their differences, or he could choose to try and find common ground. He chooses the latter. Look again at, at what he says, three quick things. First, he says, hey, we're both into religion, right? He acknowledges the Athenians' inclination to worship, because after all, their inclination to worship, their impulse to worship, it's right, even if the objects of their worship are very wrong. Postmodern novelist David Foster Wallace, maybe you've heard this quote before, but he once said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now here's the fascinating thing. Wallace wasn't a Christian. He's simply commenting on human nature and experience. Everybody worships. What do you choose to worship? See, Paul uses this reality. He uses the reality that we all worship to find common ground with the Athenians, people with which he had much disagreement. Second, he shows them that he actually understands their world. Look, he says, I walk around, I've thoughtfully considered your culture, the things you worship, your art. He goes so far as to quote their own poets. 
You see, Paul knows that if he actually wants to gain a hearing with these people, then he needs to show them that he actually understands their world, that he actually understands what they go through, that, they, that he actually understands what they like before he does anything to try and change any of it. Third, obviously Paul is trying to persuade Right? Instead of attacking their error, instead of attacking the error of every idol of every temple he saw, he draws attention to the fact that he's walking around and he sees an altar. And this altar has this inscription to the unknown God. And Paul says, You know what? I know who that God is. I know who the true God is. It's almost like he's saying, The God that you've missed. The God that you've never been able to discover, that's the one that I'm going to tell you about right now. He's trying to persuade them. Now, of course, he could have easily said to them, hey, look, we're different, you're wrong, and guess what? You've got a lot of changing to do. But he doesn't. He patiently persuades them by finding common ground. And as he does, he tells them about this true God. Picking up in in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offering, offspring, not offering, offspring, we should not think, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So who is this true God that Paul wanted the Athenians to know and to love? Well, Paul says that he's the creator of the world. And because he's the creator of the world, he's transcendent. He's not dependent on us or anything else. Verse 25 says he doesn't need anything from us. And on the other hand, verse 26 says that God is the God of history. And he's intimately involved with us, verse 28. He made us for for fellowship with him, that we would seek him and find him, verse 27. He's not like gold or silver or stone. Rather, we're his offspring. And if we're his offspring, if we're made in his image, then God has to be far more wonderful, far more magnificent, far more majestic than these silly, lifeless idols, verse 29. And finally, He says that this one true God is eventually going to hold all people accountable, even these philosophers in Athens. You see, the resurrection of Jesus places Jesus at God's right hand, showing his authority to judge the world. And in one day, Jesus is coming back. One day, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to do just that, verse 31. How do the Athenians respond? Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You see their response? Some sneered. Some said, we want to hear more. Some believed. Some believed. Now, what can we learn from this story? Lots of things, right? But, but I want to look at three things. First, 
Paul teaches us that there's always something to commend, even in people that don't share our faith in Jesus. See, one of the things you notice as you read through the book of Acts, specifically Paul's missionary journeys, is that Paul doesn't just enter into towns and cities. He enters into people's lives. He enters into their stories. And as he does so, Paul always seeks to find ways to commend and point out what God is already doing, how God is already at work in their life. In Acts chapter 14, he's in a city called Lystra. Um, look, look at verse 17. This is what he's saying to these, these um, pagans there. He says, God has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. You see, Paul's saying, God has not left himself without testimony in our lives. Far too often, I think Christians have an us versus them mentality with people that don't share our faith. We think to ourselves, or, or maybe even out loud, we're completely different people. We're, we're from different worlds. We think differently. We feel differently. We value different things. I'm right. You're wrong. You've got to change. And in doing so, we, we become disagreement people instead of people trying to find common ground. We attack or avoid instead of trying to find the witness of God already at work in people's lives. So ask yourself this. Do you, do you find, if you're honest with yourself, do you find yourself criticizing people that don't share your faith more often than you find yourself trying to bri build bridges to them? Do you find yourself criticizing more than trying to build bridges? You see, Paul teaches us that there is always something to commend. We can always find something to commend in people if we're patient enough, if we're caring enough, if we're thoughtful enough. You see, if you and I as Christians want to help persuade others to love Jesus, to live for his kingdom, then we have to start by looking for places to agree instead of places to argue. We have to start by looking for places that we can build upon what God is already doing in their life. Have the kind of patience with them that someone has had with us in our process of becoming a Christian. Look for things to commend. Look for things that you can point to Jesus. Things you can use to point to Jesus. Second, Paul teaches us that our words matter. See, if we're going to try and find common ground with others, how we speak about Jesus what really does matter, it's important. Years ago, there was a, a, an undergraduate student at Harvard, and he wanted to do an informal survey, and so this is what he did. He, he's, um, he's in town, and he, he, he goes up to people really casually, and he asks for directions to Central Square. Central Square, it's a, it's a well-known spot in the area, and, and he says, you know, most of the people that I ask for directions would give me kind of super, super brief, pretty short, you know, a couple blocks this way, another that way, and you're there type directions. And so after a while of doing this, he switches it up and he changes his, his story. And so he'd go up to people and he'd say, hey, I'm not from around here. I'm, I'm, I'm from out of town. Actually, I'm, I'm from out of the country. Could you help me get to Central Square? And what he found is that when he asked for directions like this, he got all sorts of details from people, like landmarks and specific distance and street names. People, he said, spoke much slower and were far clearer when they thought he was from out of town. 
You see, people on the street that day, they understood a principle of communication that I think sometimes you and I forget, and that's this. The less that we have in common with someone, the more careful we need to be in how we talk to them and how we explain things to them. You see, people were quick and abrupt with the local, but slower and clearer with the out-of-towner. Christians forget that when it comes to Jesus, that when it comes to the Bible and Christianity, a majority of the people that we come in contact with, a majority of the people that, that you're around aren't locals. They're from out of town. And so we use, we, we say things that, that, that people can't understand. We talk in a way that people don't get. We, we even have a name for that. We call it Christianese, right? It makes me think of this video. Bless his heart. You think he's backsliding? I think I saw him drink. Yeah, but in moderation. I just wasn't seeing much fruit. Yeah, he's going down a slippery slope. How's your heart, man? How's your heart? I'm just such a words guy. It was a total God thing. I'm blessed. I've been working on my testimony. Is that secular music? We're opening with a secular song tonight. Wait, is this a secular song? Isn't she secular? Which station's the fish? 104.3, the fish. Safe for the whole family. You know he's a believer. I think he's saved. I just pray you'd give him traveling mercies. Mm. Pray for all Tyler's unspokens. Mm. Echo that. Just really like to echo Tyler's prayer, Father. I just, I echo that echo of my echo of his echo. I really feel like I'm being released from this, you know? I'm trying to be relevant. I'm just trying to be in the world, not of it. Hey, do you want to join our small group? You want to join my D group? You want to join my cell group, community group, access group, accountability group, Acts 27 group? Dude, he brought it. He brought the word. That service last night rocked me. They're pretty purpose-driven. Yeah, it's seeker. Don't they do seeker service there? I feel like he's gotten really watered down. I don't feel like he really teaches the word. There's not enough meat, you know? Are they non denom We have a great Wednesday night supper. Let's invite some dudes over and fellowship tonight. We're gonna have a sweet time of fellowshipping tonight. Dude, we had the sickest fellowship last night. We're going to extreme. Velocity. Ignite. Yeah, I'm going to ignite. The edge. The dive. The bridge. The ramp. Fire. Courageous. Passion. Echo. Reverb. Noise. Velocity. Drive. Elevate. Radiate. 722. 635. 419. Orange. Blue. Yellow. Green. Clear. Neon. Catalyst conference this year. I don't do that because I feel like it ruins my witness. Been struggling with that. I'm really wrestling with that. I'm wrestling with a doubt. Need someone to hold me accountable. I'm really trying to be intentional with her. I'm pursuing her for sure. I'm trying to guard her heart. Guard her heart though, bro. Will you hold me accountable to that? Yeah, well, bounce your ass. Bounce your ass. Dang it. Crap. Shoot. Sheesh. Frip. Darn it. What the H? Holy crap. Son of a beasting. Dude, he's really teeing me off. I'm gonna kick his A. Are you asking me right now? Not cool. I find that offensive. It's so silly, isn't it? I mean, it, we, we listen to that, and it sounds, I, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time now. I listen, I'm guilty of all of that. Maybe not all of it, but I'm guilty of a lot of it. It sounds so stupid, right? It's, it's cringingly true. But here's the deal. Here's the deal, when we talk like this, when we talk like this, people unfamiliar with Christianity have no idea what we're talking about. When you talk about your quiet time, your non-Christian friend has no idea what that means. That doesn't mean that's a bad thing. Please have a quiet time, right? But we need to figure out how to talk around people in a way that they understand because when we don't, it just sounds silly. And it draws a line in the sand and it draws that us-them line. 
You see, the Athenians, the foreigners listening to Paul, they were pagan polytheists. And so Paul knew that he had to be careful to speak about God in a way that they could understand. But Paul also knew, Paul also knew that he had to be respectful. You see, mocking their beliefs, that wouldn't work. Mocking their beliefs, their false beliefs, that that wouldn't persuade anyone. It would do the opposite. Mocking them for their beliefs would push them further and further and further away. You see, we sometimes forget, but, but people are constantly watching, constantly listening to how we speak, to what we say. Earlier this semester, um, someone sent me a screenshot of a tweet from someone here at Mizzou. Uh, this is what it said. Kid from Veritas made a joke about the pronouns section on the waivers at work and then wrote, child of God. Child of God then proceeded to tell child of God's friend how effed up child of God got at bar last night. Child of God is 18. Now, I'm gonna say this. I have no idea who this, this person is that tweeted this, nor do I have any idea if anything that this person said is true. That's not the point. The point is this. People are listening to us. When you and I aren't careful with our words, when we mock others, when we belittle them, when we make fun of things, people, it doesn't make Jesus attractive at all. Think about this person. You think that person wants anything to do with Jesus after that interaction? I wouldn't. See, it turns people away when that's how we treat people. How we speak really matters. Third thing Paul teaches us, to treat people as people, not projects. How do you find common ground with people? It sounds simple, but talk to them as a person, not a project. You see, nobody wants to be a project, right? But everybody wants to be known by at least someone. So ask questions, get to know them, spend time with them, build a relationship. What are they like? What kinds of music and art and movies and sports do they enjoy? What do they do in their free time? Why do they like those things? What do they believe? Who's influenced them in their life? What's their family background? I don't know. But this is exactly what Paul did when he was in Athens. Look for natural opportunities to speak into their life. Grab a meal, get some coffee, play a game. See, when we seek to find common ground with people, we find all sorts of opportunities to talk about Jesus, to help persuade others to know and love him over time. Now, it's hard to imagine Two groups of people as different as Paul and the people in Acts 17. Paul's Jewish, they're Greek or foreign. Paul's a monotheist, they were pagan polytheists. Paul was committed to one way, one truth, one life. They were constantly entertaining new ideas without committing to any of them. And yet in spite of all those differences, Paul was able to find common ground with them. He entered into their lives, he entered into their stories to show them that their story was part of God's bigger story, to show them that, that through Jesus and only Jesus would their story be ultimately redeemed. 
You see, Veritas has always sought to be the kind of ministry that seeks, that is committed to finding common ground with others on campus, others that don't believe what we believe. That's the kind of ministry that we want to be. To help others see that their story only makes sense. It makes the most sense in light of God's story. As the music team comes up, what kind of Christian, if you're a Christian here tonight, what kind of Christian do you want to be? Do you want to be the kind of Christian committed to finding common ground with others? Or do you want to be the kind of person that prefers to avoid, to walk away, or maybe to argue with those that don't believe what you do? You see, let's be the kind of people, let's be a ministry committed to finding common ground with others with the hope that they would eventually know and love Jesus. Here's the deal. Some, of, some people, when we try to do this, some people are going to sneer at us. They're gonna mock you. They're not gonna want anything to do with what you're saying. Some people, though, they're they're gonna say, hey, I wanna hear some more. Let's talk later. But just like we saw in Acts 17, some people are gonna believe. They're going to believe in the hope found in Jesus and their lives are gonna be changed forever. Their lives are gonna be changed forever. Amen.